Good morning, everyone. Uh, this morning, we're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some, of, some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of God. Good morning, everybody. Want to invite our children to Children's Church? I got glasses on, so I can't see. It's kind of fuzzy. There are children. Yes, okay. Um, uh, before we start, let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, I'll introduce our, our um, preacher for this morning. Um, Lord, as we enter into this Advent season, it, it is a time of year when the church is looking at her richest and deepest theology and the most grand and glorious mystery, how the eternal, unchanging, all-powerful God could be born in a manger and how um, you would condescend to us and come to us in such a beautiful and, and humble way. And so, Lord, thank you for this opportunity during this season to celebrate and to remember these grand and mind-blowing truths. I uh, pray that uh, for our church and really all the evangelical churches, all the churches in the valley who believe the word of God, uh, Lord, would you make that mystery very profound for, for all of your people this morning and throughout this Advent season as we prepare for our celebration of your birth on Christmas. And uh, Lord, we want to pray for uh, our folks from our congregation who can't be with us this morning. Uh, Father, pray for Sharon Cox as she's um, having to um, join the family as they deal with uh, her mom's end of life. And um, I pray for the family as they gather to say goodbye to their mother uh, who's in the hospital, intubated, being just kept alive for the family to gather. Lord, I just pray that um, that the family would see in the passing of their mother the, the pain of what we just read, what we just heard about, the sin, the, the um, rebellion against you, recognize the pain of that. But Lord, I pray that the hope of Jesus Christ would be present in the midst of all of that as well, that those who know you would be reminded that death is not an end for us, but a doorway. And so, Lord, I just pray for Sharon as, as she goes and uh, for her family as they gather. Have mercy on them and, uh, and bring them peace in the middle of, uh, of um, their sor sorrow and their mourning. And Father, we thank you for Ebony Williams and, and her, um, her um, pregnancy. And we 
look forward to celebrating the birth of their baby. And we just pray for her, uh, her health this morning. She's not with us because she's, uh, she was sick. And so we pray that you would, you would bless her with uh, recovery and with strength. And we look forward to celebrating her child. And Father, we pray again for our brother, Bob Kempel. Um, as he's uh, home, but um, slowly but steadily building strength. Lord, we look forward to the day when we can uh, worship and rejoice with him here again. So would you restore him and Judy and, and bring them back to us? And uh, Father, we pray for our, our uh, Christmas caroling that we're, that's coming up. Lord, would you use it to, uh, to draw people to yourself, that maybe they would hear Christmas carols uh, for the first time and pay attention to the words pay attention to the truth that's in them. So go with us as we plan, as we uh, begin to uh, bring the glory of Christmas to, to friends in our neighborhoods. And Father, I want to pray now for my friend Kyle before he comes to preach for us. Lord, I pray that uh, you had heard our prayers throughout the week, that you'd been working in him, uh, showing him what it is from the text that we need to hear. What what message will he bring to us this morning? And so, uh, Lord, as he, as he comes, we pray that you would bless him. And, and Lord, would you speak through your servant? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So about maybe once a month, uh, I have an appointment in my calendar, and all it says is the guys. That's, that's all I ever write down. And what that is, is that's a group of us get together and we eat lunch together at the Habit or Chipotle or last time we were at Lucky Luke's uh, on the boulevard. And it's just this time where, where Kyle and I and Sherman, the pastor from First Baptist in, in uh, Boron, we get together and we just enjoy each other, just encourage each other. What are you facing? What's going on? We talk some deep theology. We talk some practical issues. Usually we talk football. Um, that, that's going to come up. And so it's just a, a delight to be with other guys and, and talk about you know having the same struggles, the same questions, the same problems. And so that's the guys. So if I ever mention the guys, that's who I'm speaking of. And uh, so with the guys, I would have to say that Kyle has probably got the best hair. Um, that would be because both Sherman and I are bald. Um, so he's got the best hair. We've got the best head because God had to hide that imperfect head under all that hair. That, that's the theory anyway. So what we wanted to do is share the pulpits and, and, and exchange the blessings that we have with each other's churches. So Dan got to preach in Boron. Uh, I got to preach for Kyle, and now Kyle's coming to preach for me. I'm looking forward to preaching in Boron sometime as well. So this morning uh, is the beginning of Advent, and Kyle graciously agreed to preach that first sermon on the very first epiphany, the very first theophany, which is from Genesis. So uh, Kyle, thank you for preaching, and, and may God bless your word. So when Pastor Tim preached at our church in Berean Fellowship, I introduced him as the wise and sophisticated pastor. And what do I get? I get pastor with best hair, but a bad head. So that's, that's okay. Good humility. It was funny because <laughs> it was funny because when I, uh, when I introduced Pastor Tim as the smart pastor from our group, Professor Tim, as you all might know him. He uh, he got up there and immediately said, yeah, 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 smart pastor, whatever, whatever. And then proceeded to open his sermon by talking about the history of the study of plate tectonics and geology. And I sat there in the audience thinking, case in point right here, my brother. <laughs> 
but I am beyond honored and privileged to be with this local demonstration of Christ's body today. Uh, anybody who is friend and family of Pastor Tim is a friend and family of mine. So I'm very excited to be with you all today. And I'm excited to be able to preach through the beginning of this new Advent series that you all are going to be going through. And before we begin to talk about that series and preach through it, I'd be honored if you all would join me in just one more word of prayer to bless our time here today. Father God, we thank you so much for this season, this season of getting to revisit families, rekindle old friendships, Lord, and to be with each other in a relaxed way. But Father, I pray we never forget the source of the hope for this season, because our hope for everything cannot be in things that we get in this world. It can never be in even the temporary relationships that we have with each other, as good and fruitful as they might be. Lord, I pray that we would be reminded that our hope comes from the fact that your only begotten son died, resurrected, and rose again on behalf of anybody who would repent and believe in him. Because of that, we have a peace, a joy, and a rest that nobody in this world can know outside of Christ. I pray to begin to go through this series on the demonstrations of your presence, Lord, that we would remember the sacrifice that your son made for us and the great victory he achieved in his resurrection. It's in Christ's name that I pray these things. Amen. So if I had to wager to bet as I look at this room full of people, I'd wager to bet that most in this room together today enjoys helping others. In fact, maybe that's something most people in the world would say they like to do, is to help others. Now, as Christians, we know that the greatest help we can ever give to a person is to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to them. But also, there are moments we get to help each other that go even on a more practical level as far as blessing each other. Uh, maybe we like to help somebody in a time of need or just to show somebody that we're thinking about them. Sometimes, though, helping each other can be easy, easier than other times. And I'm not going to say this is everybody, but I'd wager to bet that most people might find it easy to help others when they just have a practical need that has to be fulfilled. Like if somebody has to be moved or if uh, somebody needs a meal cooked for them as they're recovering from a surgery, things like that. Those can be, generally speaking, easy to do. Helping others becomes a lot more difficult when the need goes beyond just a practical one and it enters into helping somebody who is in a moment of distress, mental distress, emotional distress, spiritual distress. Those moments become harder to help each other. Mostly because I would say we as people so badly want to say the right thing. And we're so afraid of saying the wrong thing. What do we actually say to somebody who just lost their spouse in a tragic car accident? Gosh, what can we say to somebody who unexpectedly lost their job? I mean, we don't want to fall into just cliches. We don't want to just go into their home and say, God's got a plan for you, my friend. His way is mysterious. 
And both those things are true, but sometimes we can get the sense that we feel that those things just aren't enough and we overthink how we actually help people because helping people in their time of distress, it's difficult. And it doesn't get made easier just because someone's a pastor and does it all the time. Helping people is always difficult. But I think as time goes on, we start to learn more and more that one of the greatest things we can ever give to somebody in their time of distress is our presence. Just the fact that we're there. Because that presence being with somebody in a time of distress requires sacrifice and it communicates even without words that this person who's suffering, they're not alone. Never have been and never will be. And in the story of the Bible, one of the greatest truths that God shows to his people, one of the greatest truths of Christianity is that God is present with his people. He is with those who follow him. It is one of the most unique things about Christianity that I think exists compared to other religions and worldviews. Because a lot of religions will prop up a deity that is immaculate, but is also unapproachable, unattainable, uninterested in the comings and goings of the mere creatures on earth. I even think about the religion of the context of the world when Christianity was birthed in the in the Roman Empire. Think about the the Roman gods, the the Greek gods, these these gods, there's a lot of them, but they're not all very helpful. A lot of times their morals don't go beyond the people that demand them their worship. And a lot of times these gods will just abandon the people they favor and abandon their champions on a quest they sent them on just because they lost interest. They weren't entertained anymore. And that is so different than the God of the Old and the New Testaments, who is with his people. Now, we know on one level, God is always present. He's everywhere present. The theological word for this would be he is omnipresent, meaning that there is not a place in this earth that a man can go to or a woman can go to, and God will not know where they are, know who they are, and know the comings and goings of their heart. Uh, One of the greatest classic references for this teaching comes from Jeremiah chapter 23, where uh, Jeremiah writes, can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord. And this is not a teaching that somehow God is everything in the world, a a pantheistic idea that somehow because uh, God is everywhere, that means he is everything. God is the trees. God is, you know, is, is the river. God is us. That's not the teaching of the Bible. The Bible is teaching us that God is everywhere and he controls everything and he's not limited in time and space, like you and I are. But even knowing that God is always present, there are moments in scripture when God gives a special focused presence to his people, a special focused presence. And there are moments when he speaks directly 
to the people who follow him. He's had many conversations and direct words to Abraham, to Jacob, to other patriarchs of the Old Testament. And of course, on this side of the cross, we still have God speaking to us, but he has spoken once and for all in his holy word. So we still have God's presence even in his word. But there are moments even beyond just his words where God makes a special appearance to his people. And in these special appearances, God often takes a form that is understandable, that is relatable to the people he is speaking to. Because as we saw with the, the story of Moses on Mount Sinai, if he just showed all his glory to a person as he is, that person's not going to last very long because they can't behold the glory of God in that way. But God will show his presence with people in special ways. And he does this in a lot of different ways. Sometimes he appears as fire. Sometimes he appears as chariots. Uh, sometimes he appears, as we see in Exodus chapter 3, as his presence in the burning bush when he speaks to Moses. And there are times when he will appear in the presence of, of his people in the appearance of a person. All these appearances that God displays for his people, we have a word for it. We call that word a theophany. A theophany is, the word theophany is a combination of two words that essentially mean God appearance. It's God appearing to his people in a way that they can understand and learn from him. And understanding theophanies can be a tricky thing because there are some things we have to make clear that we don't mean when we talk about a theophany. For one, when God takes the appearance of something for a person to understand him and to see him, that does not mean that God changes in his nature. He's unchangeable. Nothing can change him. Nothing can limit him. Just because he takes the appearance of something does not mean he is somehow confined to the limitations of what he appears as. When he appears as a person to another person, that does not mean that God has the same limitations that an actual person would have, like us. It means that he takes on this appearance to be able to communicate with his listeners. So God is unchangeable. God is never limited when he takes on a theophany. Him doing this is a complete act of his grace. It's an act of his desire to communicate and condescend, so to speak, to his creation. And when we see theophanies, not always, but oftentimes, they're not there for just no reason. They're actually never there for no reason. Most often, while they're, why they're there for is to teach us something about God and to teach us something about the relationship between God and his people. Like in Exodus chapter 3, that was the moment when Moses learned the covenant name of God at the burning bush. When God appears he, in a theophany, most often we have a moment in the text where we get to learn something new about God, where he establishes something we knew or corrects something that we didn't know. They are great teaching moments in scripture. 
And starting today, going through the end of this year, you all will be going through a series on theophanies in the Bible. Because one other super important thing to know about theophanies is that especially in the Old Testament, they always point to something bigger than themselves. And they all point to one ultimate theophany. But I will not give any spoilers for that right there. I'll have Pastor Tim talk to you more about that when the time comes. Today, since I'm introducing this series to you all on theophanies, we are going to be going to the first real theophany that we see in Scripture, which happens in the context of Genesis chapter 3, which was read for us today. And we are going to be in Genesis chapter 3, but before we begin to dive into the actual text of what that says about the first theophany, we're going to set a little bit of context for what has already happened in the first two chapters of Genesis, just to get good background on what's happening. We know in Genesis chapter 1, we have the one of the most miraculous moments in all of scripture. It can become kind of inoculated to us because we especially if we grew up in church we've heard the story over and over and over again but this miraculous event in genesis 1 of god in his grace and in his power he creates a lot of something out of nothing creation ex nihilo is the old phrase to refer to that he creates the world and eventually at the end of chapter one, he creates a very special part of the world. He creates humanity. Humanity is very different from the other parts of creation. And we see that specifically at the end of uh, chapter one in verse 27, when we read that God creates humanity in his own image. And we could do a whole another series on what that actually means, that man is made in the image of God. But for now, we'll suffice it to leave it that it means that humanity is very different in its relationship to God than anything else is in the world. God also gives humanity a charge in chapter one, gives them a purpose. Their purpose is to be fruitful, to multiply, fill this earth that God has created as his representatives and to rule it for his glory. And then in Genesis chapter two, when Adam is placed in the garden of Eden, God again reminds him of his purpose, gives him a companion to help him with his purpose, and then gives him a warning also. The warning being, that if you do not obey my words and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you will surely die. And we know the end of a story, obviously, that when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they didn't die on the spot. But it is a promise. The day they eat of it, as surely as they were created, they will eventually die. It's an inescapable fate for humanity ever since. It's a reality that, especially in this day and age, we just try to ignore. We try to find ways to delay death as much as possible and delay ever thinking about the fact that we will someday die. It's understandable because it's a frightening thing. No one here knows what it's like to experience death. And that is part of the consequence of the, the breaking of God's word, which we'll talk about more in a minute here. 
But in the first two chapters of Genesis, we see already a relationship that is established between God and humanity. Now, I, along with several others who commenting on this passage, I would call this relationship that God has with Adam and Eve a covenant. Not everybody would call it a covenant because if you read through those first few chapters of Genesis, you're not going to find the word covenant in there like you will other places. But for me, my, uh, my in interpretation philosophy is if it quacks like a covenant, if it looks like a covenant, I'm going to call it a covenant. And I'm okay with that. At the very least, there's a relationship. There's a promise. There's an expectation that if humanity obeys God, they will have life eternal. If they disobey God, there will be consequences, consequence of death. We eventually come into Genesis chapter 3 with the backdrop of the covenant relationship between God and humanity. In Genesis chapter 3, we are in the Garden of Eden. We don't know long, how long Adam and Eve have been there. But we do know that paradise is about to be lost. Genesis 3 opens up with an introduction of a new character, the serpent, which some believe to be Satan himself. Some believe it's just a representative of Satan. Either way, this is the work of the enemy in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent tempts the woman, Eve, with a promise that if you do eat of this tree that God has commanded you not to eat of, then you will not surely die. But instead, you're going to be like God. You will be wise as him. And that is the, the implication is that is the reason, according to the serpent, why God doesn't want his uh, creation to take of this knowledge, because if they do, then God will have a rival. So the woman, though she attempts to stand on an understanding of what God has said, eventually gives in to the temptation. She saw that the tree looked desirable to make one wise. She took of the fruit, she ate it, gives to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it also. And then, as the text says, the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized that they were naked. In their shame, in their corrupted understanding now, they go to cover themselves. It is a pretty dark moment in this passage. It is not a good situation Adam and Eve have placed themselves into in Genesis 3. And it's in that moment where Adam and Eve experience the immediate consequences of their sin and the corruption of the paradise they were placed into that we see the first true theophany in Scripture, which is enlightening for us. Because here we see that when God appears to his people, when he gives a specific focused presence of himself to his people, it's when his people are at their worst. And a lot of times, that is where God comes to meet us. 
is at their worst. Man, I think of the story of Hagar, who was the, uh, the servant of Abraham and Sarah. They were not bearing children. They panicked. And so Abraham and Hagar slept together, and she was pregnant with Ishmael. Sarah wasn't very happy about it at the end of it. Abraham, under Sarah's beckoning, banished Hagar from their camp. Hagar's by herself, pregnant and hopeless. And the Lord speaks to her, comes to meet her. That right there, the fact that God gives his presence to people in their time of desperate need shows how unique of a God he is compared to any other thing we can imagine. Because he's glorious, he's majestic, he's special. And yet he takes his time to speak to his people when they are desperate. He values his people so much that he reminds them specifically of his presence. Here in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have made a mistake. A mistake that's going to cost not just themselves, but all of humanity after them. And God appears to them. So we can never think that we are somehow outside of God's scope and love in the moment of our darkest hours. Oftentimes, that is when we need the Lord the most, and it is when he comes. In verse 8 of Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And we don't know how many times this has already happened, if any, before we see here in Genesis 3. But what we do know is Adam and Eve recognize the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. And you cannot help but wonder how different that sound would have sounded to them before this moment of the fall of humanity. The sound of the Lord God walking in the garden before the fall was meant to bring joy to his creation. This is meant to be a, a sound, almost like when a child hears his parent coming home after work. It's, it's a sound of joy, of excitement. Dad's home, mom's home. This is wonderful. This was meant to be a happy thing to hear this sound. But now, what has sin done to it? They hear the sound. The sound does not bring joy. The sound does not bring excitement to Adam and Eve. The sound brings fear. The sound brings shame. The sound, rather than drawing, oops, excuse me, I'm not used to this mic, you have to forgive me here. The sound, drawing, rather than drawing them closer to the Lord God, draws them away. And church, that is the kind of fear humanity still has to this day when it comes to their creator. It's one reason why so many people don't want to even acknowledge the existence of the God of the Bible because they're so afraid of what it means for them. 
because I believe most of humanity would recognize there's something wrong with their nature. There's something wrong with their relationship to the higher power, the greater being, whatever they want to call it. They know they're not perfect. And to admit there is a perfect God who holds us accountable to living according to his word, that's an admission that we've strayed from it, that we're in trouble, that we're afraid. This is the kind of fear that will not just draw a man away from his creator. This is the kind of fear that will draw a man away from his brother. This will draw a man away from his church. This is the kind of fear that will produce a shame that that brings us a desire to cover up our wrongs, to cover them up as Adam and Eve did, and to flee. And for so many people, they lose their connections with their families, with their churches, with their friends, because there comes a time, inevitably, where sin comes again into their lives. And there's such a fear to confess it. There's such a fear to own it. Because we're afraid of how we're going to be seen now if our families, our churches, our friends know of our sin. We're afraid of how we're going to be talked about. We're afraid of how we're going to be perceived. We're afraid of how people will react to when the consequences of our sin finally come. So humanity's go-to response is to flee, to hide in fear, leave people and hide in shame. So Adam and Eve set the pattern for the rest of humanity in this moment because they flee from the sound of the Lord God. Now in the big picture, especially knowing on this side of the cross, one of the most glorious truths that we have from our faith is that though we still understand sin is serious and God is holy and sin cannot be ignored, we never have to be afraid and run from our creator. That is the beauty of the grace of the cross of Christ. Like 1 John 1, 9 tells us anybody who confesses their sin, confesses that Christ is Lord, will be forgiven. So if there's anybody in this building right now who knows they have sin and their desire is to run from the consequences, to run from their creator or to run from those around them who want to help and love them. I encourage you, you do not have to be afraid. You don't have to run. Christ is king and Christ has defeated death and sin. If we repent and call upon his name, there is always forgiveness. Don't run from the sound of Christ. Don't run from your people. He loves you and your church loves you. But Adam and Eve do flee. They run. The Lord continues to walk in the garden. As we said before here, this is the first theophany that we see in scripture some don't some commentators don't really see it as a theophany because there's not an, an explicit description of god's actual appearance to uh the, the to adam and eve we just hear a sound of him walking and then see his words to them 
So for some, this means that there isn't actually really a theophany here. But again, it quacks like a theophany. It looks like one. So I'm going to make the jump and say that this is God actually appearing to them in the form of maybe even a person to be able to communicate to them. Because it seems a little strange to see that there's a sound of him walking in the garden and just pretend that there is not actually an appearance there to make that sound. Now, I remember way back when I was in Sunday school, uh, we were watching a one of those animated videos of the story of Genesis. And the part was coming up where God's about to talk to Adam and Eve after they had sinned. And as a kid, I was always super excited to see how the movies were going to display the things in the Bible. Uh, so the, the part comes where God talks to Adam and Eve in this moment. And I wanted to see how they were going to display God. And what they did was they they pictured him as a giant, not even giant, about the size of my hand. It was a, a yellow orb, like a crystal ball almost, that just spoke in a very booming voice. And church, I cannot explain to you why, but in that moment, I broke down laughing when I saw that. I cannot explain to you why, but it just was so unexpected and seemed so random to me. The problem was, in that entire classroom, I was the only one who was laughing when that happened, which means that both I and my parents had some post-church conversations with some people once that happened. But it seems a little odd to think that God's not actually present with Adam and Eve here. I fully believe this is the first true theophany that we see in the Garden of Eden and in the story of Scripture. So God asks where Adam and Eve are, and this should be obvious, but we are not to understand that somehow God didn't actually know where Adam and Eve were. This is not a proof text for belief like uh, open theism, which says that God, like us, learns about his creation as time goes on like we do. That's not the case at all. God is all-knowing as he is all-present here. Uh, this is, I believe, a way for the Lord to begin to give his creation a chance to take ownership and to reconnect with their creator. It's also something sometimes you even see in, uh, in parenting techniques. I mean, I remember one time when I was nine years old, uh, I was destroying the walls of my parents' house with a crayon. I can't, can't tell you why. I mean, I was a kid. I worshiped chaos. That's probably why. No, I just like to destroy things. And in that room, my mom and my dad saw me do it. They, they had clear line of sight that I was destroying their walls. And so I, I knew I was busted. They, they, they talked and they wanted to bring me to the other room to talk. And in that moment, to give me a chance to be honest, they asked me, Kyle, were you drawing on the walls? Now, as a kid, sometimes for no reason, you just think your parents are idiots at moments, right? Sometimes you just do. So in that moment, I thought that when they asked me if I was the one drawing on the walls, even though they were in the room with me, I somehow thought that meant that, oh, they didn't actually see me do it. Oh, I can get away with this. And I told them that it wasn't me, it was my brother, even though they were in the exact same room with me. So not only did I, did I get busted for being destroyed of their property, I also lied right to their face. So there was a, a moment for them, though, even though they knew I was the one who had done this, they gave me a chance to bring ownership. So the Lord gives Adam and Eve that chance. 
when they uh, when Adam and Eve come out and they they say why they were afraid, they say they they knew they were naked, so they they ran and they hid themselves. Uh, the Lord, knowing what happens, you know, He asked them, "Who told you you were naked?" Obviously, you took of the tree that you were not supposed to take, and then Adam and Eve fall into uh, the greatest game that humanity plays, which is the game of blame shifting. Right? Not I, says the creature. Never me. The woman blames the serpent because the serpent deceived her about what the tree was, which is true. The serpent has his own place in all of this, but Eve also entered into her own doubts about the the, tru- the, the truthful nature of God's word. And then Adam, uh, he goes for double points when it comes to blame shifting because he blames the woman for giving him the fruit. And ultimately in doing that, he blames God for being so evil to give him a companion, I guess. You know, it was the woman you gave to me. It was the companion you gave to me. And in this moment, from verses 14 to uh, fourteen to 19, we see God hand out his curses and consequences for sin. Another reason why I believe we can see this relationship as a covenant in the Garden of Eden is because God enters into a moment of giving covenant curses for the breaking of the promise in the relationship between God and humanity. I won't read through all the words we see here in Genesis 3, but uh, to summarize each of them, God tells the serpent, because of what you have done, you are cursed more than all the creation of the world. You are cursed to be on your belly, to eat dust the rest of your life, and then He doesn't just give him a curse for the time being. He gives him a curse for forever when he tells them that eventually he will put put enmity between him and the woman, between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of Eve. And even though in a certain way, the serpent will and his offspring will get their licks in, so to speak, they will bite the heel of the offspring, the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And we'll talk more about the significance of that promise in a moment here. But notice how the enemy has been given the worst consequence out of anybody in this garden right now. Because what he has just been told is you will be locked in a very long conflict between God's seed, God's offspring, and your own offspring. You'll be locked in a battle. And even though it will seem at some small moments you have won, you don't. You're going to lose. Your head will be crushed. Can you imagine what a terrible existence that is? To know you're always going to fight, but also know that you're also definitely going to lose. What a terrible, terrible existence that is. The only comp- I, the only comparison I could think about it uh, comes to how every Thanksgiving, the National Football League insists on putting the Detroit Lions on the Thanksgiving Day slate. Now, Tim, we know what's going to happen every single year, don't we? They're going to lose. They're going to get beaten for all of America to see. And even though they may get beaten, no matter how badly they might get beaten, guess what? You know they're coming back next year. And the same thing's happening over and over again. So one of the worst things you can be here as an application of a sermon is to be a Lions fan. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) 
the serpent is going to lose. To the woman, he gives the, the, the promise and the curse that eventually she will have her offspring. She will have this, the, her, her children that will lead eventually to the birth of the seed, the birth of Christ. But the process to get there is now going to be painful. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And Adam, he is promised that even though he is still called to subdue the earth, to fill the earth and to work it, the promise is now that it is not going to be an enjoyable thing for you to do. Make no mistake, even on this side of the cross, work is something we're all called to, and it's something that glorifies God. But in the end, it is also something that requires sacrifice from us, that would require difficulty from us. And at the end, as we work the ground, eventually the promise of death, of death remains. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. This is a dark moment in the history of scripture. There's a lot of curses that are made here, a lot of promises of suffering. And in the end of Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are eventually banished from the tree of life and the Garden of Eden. And this is speculation at this point, but you can't help but wonder how often Adam and Eve remembered the Garden of Eden, remembered what they had in paradise and how quickly they lost it. If I was in their shoes, that's on my mind every single day until the day that I die. Now, it ends in a season of hope, though, this passage does. For one, we see that this is the first moment in verse 20 that Adam gives the woman her name, which is Eve, the mother of all living. If you remember, the promise is that there will be a seed, an offspring, who will bring victory against the serpent. And since Eve is the mother of all that is living, that means the process starts now. The, the path to the seed starts here. But also, as we look at this theophany, there are some specific things that we learn about the Lord even here. I mean, for one, we learn that the presence of God is a great thing, but can also be a terrifying thing. The difference between whether or not it is a great thing or a terrifying thing depends upon whether or not your heart is in Christ. Eventually, everybody will have to give an account before the Creator. I recently did a, a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus speaks about false prophets, speaks about those who look like they belong with the kingdom of God, but they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And eventually, it will be made obvious when they stand before Christ, when they stand before the Creator, that they are not of Christ. Christ calls them workers of lawlessness. He calls them, uh, he tells them that they are to depart from him because he never even knew who they were. He never knew them. And in that moment, even though the false prophets give their justifications, they give their excuses, they say, but Lord, 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 we did all this stuff for you. 
We prophesied for you. We, we cast out demons for you. We did all this stuff for you. How are you not going to let us in? Because the issue is, as Jesus says in that context, they are a corrupt tree. They have a heart that does not belong to Christ. So in the end, no matter how much stuff we do today, as good as it might be, if your heart does not belong to Christ, then eventually the presence of God will not be a source of comfort for you. In fact, as we look into the big story of scripture one day, we know Christ will return to this earth. And it is a moment of joy, glory, and celebration for his church. But there are a lot of people that are going to be suffering because Christ returns. It's not a great thing for everybody. And the presence of God, we also know, is something that draws out sin, as we see here. The presence of God means that nothing will be unseen from us. And that's not meant to scare us. It's meant to take it seriously that we have to keep our hearts accountable to our creator. And even though Genesis 3 seems like it's the worst chapter possible in the story of scripture, in many ways it can be, we also see here the presence of God always does come with hope. That hope exists, ironically, in the promise of defeat that the Lord gives to his enemy. That hope is the offspring of Eve. It's the seed of the woman. And like we said about theophanies, theophanies always look forward to something greater than themselves. In this moment, God is looking forward to the birth of a specific person who in his work will destroy death, deliver the final blow to Satan in his defeat of death. That, of course, is Christ, the person that we celebrate in this season and even out of this season. When we come to Genesis 3, it's so important to know that there are a lot of things we need to, we need to take seriously and give us sober hearts about. Uh, we see the damage we do to ourselves when we flee from our creator rather than run to him. Hopefully you can see the damage you even do to yourselves when you flee from your brothers and sisters in Christ instead of run to them to confess sin. But also in the midst of this condemnation, there's a reason to leave this room today and have joy. Because we're not waiting for the seed of the woman anymore. He has come. He has conquered. He is victorious. And he is ever present with us, even in the darkest hour. I'm going to go ahead and close this off with a word of prayer. And we'll transition to the next part of the service. But Lord God, I thank you so much for this truth you have given to us in the seed of the woman. Father, there's a lot we see in this past that reminds us of the separation that occurs in sin, Lord, of a separation that occurs within our churches and our families when we flee from each other because of our fear of sin. But Lord, you have promised to us hope. 
So I pray for everybody here today, they would stop running from their sin, stop trying to hide their shame, and instead come to Christ with open hearts. Lord, we thank you for the promise you have given to the enemy, that not only will he be defeated, but hope is here for those who are in Christ. We thank you for the seed. We thank you for your presence. And we thank you for the promise of forgiveness. It is in Christ that I pray these things. Amen.